Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Bruce Ragsdale. Dr. Ragsdale was a fellow at the Washington Library during the 2014-2015 academic year and was a recipient of the James C. Reese Entrepreneurship Fellowship. Dr. Ragsdale has served as director of the Federal Judicial History Office at the Federal Judicial Center and as an associate historian at the U.S. House of Representatives. He is here to discuss his work studying George Washington's agricultural entrepreneurship. You'll hear about Washington's interest in the continual improvement of his farms at Mount Vernon and how this related to his changing opinions on slavery. And now, Dr. Ragsdale and Bradburn. All right, so welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn at George Washington's Library, the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon. And uh, I'm here with uh, one of my favorite people in the world, Bruce Ragsdale, who's been a fellow at the library for a long time. And so we've had many chances to have conversations. And so welcome, Bruce. Thank you, Doug. So this gives me a great opportunity to talk about you and for you to talk about yourself. Uh, and I'm particularly interested in the current work you're doing related to George Washington, the agriculturalist. But let's, uh, before we dive into that exciting uh, material, let's look a little bit at your, your history here. So you were uh, a long time, well, you're a PhD, and you, and you got your PhD at the University of Virginia yes. back in the day. And uh, you went on to become the director of the Federal Judiciary History Office at the Federal Judicial Center. How did that come about? Uh, my first job after graduate school, after completing my PhD, was a job at the um, House of Representatives History Office then, where mm -hmm. I was hired to do editorial work for them, uh, largely on the basis of my experience as an editorial assistant at the papers of George Washington. So there yeah. was that connection. But I moved on from so you, 18th what, century Virginia to yeah. uh, the House of Representatives. So, you, uh, so back in the day when you were at UVA working with the papers of George Washington, uh, that was under Bill Abbott's administration. Yes. What was that like? Um, well, it was great. I learned so much about editing and um, uh, the craft of editing, but I also am, was able to immerse myself in uh, Washington's private affairs. I, I was given the task of doing the background research for all of Washington's correspondence with his London merchants in the years before the Revolution. So that's how I first became interested in the tobacco trade and Washington's management of, of farming at Mount Vernon. So your dissertation then would ultimately become your first book, yes. The Planter's Republic, yes, which is uh, one of my favorites. We'll talk about it in a, in a second, I think. Uh, you, did you want to find a job as a professor? Yes, I always thought I would teach. I loved teaching. I did a lot of teaching as a graduate student mm -hmm. and applied for teaching jobs. Um, I didn't get the two that I was a runner-up for uh, that mm -hmm. year. I finished graduate school, and then I got this job in Washington, and it really took me in a different direction. Yeah. And, uh, 
Well, that's, uh, that's really interesting, and I think it'll be interesting to some people who listen to our conversations here, graduate students in particular, who are thinking about public history positions or non-professor uh, uh, academic history positions. Uh, talk a little bit about that, that first job at the, the House of Representatives. Uh, how many of these types of jobs exist out there? There aren't that many jobs. It's, it's not something you could plan for or, or count on any more than you could count on getting a tenure-track job in history. But, um, and they're very different from a lot of other public history jobs, such as those in museums or at the National Archives. This job, I was hired to um, edit a, a new edition of the Biographical Directory of Congress that was coming out for the Bicentennial of Congress in 1989, and also to do a variety of editorial projects and writing projects related to uh, that event. So mm -hmm. that's what I was working on um, my early years there. So the work was not that different uh, from what you would be doing at an editorial project, for instance, in an academic setting, mm -hmm. except that we were in this intensely political institution <laughs> and working with members of Congress. Yeah. And um, so in that sense, it culturally could not have been different from, from working in the academy. So you reported to someone who was a political appointee at some level? Well, not, this office was very proudly not um, yeah. uh, partisan. Mm -hmm. it, had, it was overseen by um, a committee that was actually 50-50, not, not set up for any partisan majority, but it mm -hmm. was um, uh, a 50-50 membership, and it was uh, chaired, it was chaired by a Democrat, uh, Lindy Boggs, uh, but on the Republican side, most of the time I was there, it was, the co-chair was Newt Gingrich, mm -hmm. um, so it was a very bipartisan, uh, and all people who loved history, so that, that yeah. part helped. Mm -hmm. So you stayed in a government employee. You moved over to the judiciary. What was? The, how did that transition come about? I was asked to apply for the job at the history office at the um, Federal Judicial Center, but it, it's a history office that serves all the federal courts, particularly focused on the uh, district courts and the U.S. Courts of Appeals. Uh, they wanted somebody to put together the first ever biographical directory of federal judges, and mm -hmm. since I, I, I was a logical person to invite, since I had done that, and that was my first uh, job there was to, to put this together. But unlike the congressional directory, this one basically had to, to be done from scratch and to go back to um, primary sources of judicial service and nomination and confirmation process and did that in the first four or five years I was there. So, so how did you manage that project? Was this farmed out to... Other historians? Did you do this all yourself? I we mean, did it all ourselves. And it's published small online? Well, it, I, it was going to be a published volume. And mm -hmm. this was in, I started this in 1995. And within mm -hmm. a month or two, even though there was barely anything on the internet, yeah. I realized that a third of the judges in all of uh, U.S. history were still alive, uh, <laughs> just because there's an explosion in the judiciary beginning in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought, well, this is not doesn't make sense to put this in a volume because it will immediately be out of date. So mm -hmm. we looked into putting it online, yeah. which then, of course, gave us the option You're an of... an innovator, Bruce. Yes, well, I... That's extraordinary. I, um, and I mean, I, the Internet, as you say, I mean, there's nothing no, no, on there the, barely what we would call there. the World Wide right. Web no, back no. in the day. And I remember when I was graduating from the University of Virginia as an undergrad, I went down in the bowels of Alderman Library, I think with Dorothy Tuig, who was an editor at the Washington yes. Papers at the time, to see this phenomenal new new thing called the web, and they pulled it up, and all it was was the museum opening hours of an Australian <laughs> museum, yes. yeah. and that was it. That no, was all that right. there was. No, they, exactly. They promised that the yeah. future will be there, yeah. 
I might have been told to go west, young man, and make my fortune in Silicon Valley. And I said, this is absurd. Why would anybody ever do that? Uh, this but is, you were there at the cutting yeah. edge. Right? Well, this dates me, too, because my original idea was that the alternative would be to do it on a CD-ROM. CD-ROM, Because yes. it could be very easily and inexpensively updated on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. But it quickly made sense that we uh, mm -hmm. should put this online and... That gave us the capability to also make it searchable and put it in a database form. So it's, it became the most widely used, still is the most widely used resource of the federal judicial system. 1990, yeah, mid-90s, the CD-ROM seemed to be the thing. I remember some right. of the documentary yeah. projects. I was at Camp Edit around that time. Yeah. And some of the projects were, were going to be doing letterpress, but then they were going to put their non-published stuff on CD-ROMs that would accompany yeah. the books. And I guess that went by the... That went the way of the eight track. Yes, exactly. So yeah, interesting. So then, so you, so that project went on for four or five years, and it's continually updated. So what else did you do uh, in that role? Um, I, I, as we put it online, I, I decided to expand that site and and to create what essentially is an encyclopedia of uh, federal judicial history. Mm -hmm. So it includes histories of every federal court. It has lots of information on key legislation, types, areas of jurisdiction, how they've changed over time, staff of the courts. Uh, and then uh, the next really major project um, that I created to put online was to do an education initiative. Yeah. Nobody, um, nobody includes the history of the lower federal courts in a high school history course. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't think they ever would. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was put together materials that someone who's teaching another topic would be able to incorporate something about yeah. the federal courts. So at least in a government class. Well, and also I, I decided to find cases that related to topics that every U.S. history course looks at. Yeah. So yeah. if someone's teaching woman suffrage, they can look at the trial of Susan B. Anthony. If they're teaching immigration, they can look at Chu Hyong and mm -hmm. slavery for Amistad. And, and we ended up with about 15 um, yeah. units um, and a professional development institute that went with that. I, I probably had more fun doing that than anything else in that job. Yeah, well, it sounds like, well, so you always wanted to teach, and so this was your, that was your chance to, to, to do, do that, that and yeah. have an impact on it. I know you did, you mentioned the Professional Development Institute and the, what we would call here the Teacher Institute yes. that, you, that you did. Um, so an innovator uh, all around. But you came into my consciousness first and foremost when I was a graduate student uh, and uh, I read your book, The, uh, the Planter's Republic, uh, which is uh, a tremendous book. Um, who did you publish that with? Madison House? Uh, Madison House, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so uh, talk a little bit about, about that study. What is, it, uh, what is it a study of in a nutshell? It started looking uh, from looking at the non-importation associations in Virginia before the revolution, the ones established um, in, in protest of the towns and duties and, and later imperial acts. But it then spread out to a much broader look of political efforts to establish a more independent economy in um, Virginia. And that political effort meant um, breaking away from the tobacco trade, trying to diversify both trade and production in um, Virginia. Um, and also lessening um, the in influx of, of slaves, which were seen as a, way, um, uh, a bar to diversifying the economy of bringing in uh, uh, trained uh, free white artisans. So there was a, a, a parallel effort to re restrict the slave trade in Virginia, and all of the same people were involved in these efforts and become leaders of, of the uh, resistance movement and, and later of the revolution. Yeah, for my money, it was the best study of the coming of the revolution that linked political rhetoric with economic 
reform efforts mm -hmm. and also economic grievances uh, in a way that uh, that made sense. Um, uh, what uh, I mean, did you did you feel like the reception it received uh, merited the the innovations of the study, or where where are you at with that book now? Um, initially, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but in the long run, I actually have had more yeah. people come to me and talk to me about that book. Yeah. 10 and 15 years later, it's, uh, it, yeah, which is yeah. really the most you can ask for when you write a monograph, is that someone still knows about it and consults it 15, even 20, now 20 years later, people have... Yeah. I uh, think a lot of us, we write that first book, and mm -hmm. you know, we imagine, we, we think we understand the book trade, and you're imagining that it's, you know, it's either, it's going to have this impact, right. but with academic monographs, it is a slower burn. It's a very slow burn, and yeah. um, well, that's good but to know. you need to need to think about that when you're putting it together because the durability <laughs> of something is is very important yeah well sustainability is yeah. always a good thing I always I always tell the story about Bruce when I'm introducing him and that you know uh, a lot of us who admire books uh, you know we admire the author of the book without knowing the author and it's always pleasing when you meet the author and they're uh, and they're as nice as the book is Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no comment on that. Okay, so uh, but let's get to the, the, the big question, which is uh, we gave you this fellowship. What were you doing on your fellowship time here at Mount Vernon? I was beginning a book project on, on uh, a history of, of Washington's involvement in farming throughout his whole, his whole life and to look at um, what he was trying to accomplish as a farmer here at Mount Vernon, both in terms of establishing his own um, financial stability and prosperity, um, and also very quickly uh, understanding that what he did here at Mount Vernon could serve as a model. And some of this grew out of what I had done in the Planner's Republic book, that he had seen his diversification and improvements at Mount Vernon as a way of, of, of setting a model for smaller farmers in Virginia. But that, um, that interest in providing a public model and the ambitions of his farming just become much, much greater after the Revolution when he returns um, from after he leaves the Continental Army. So why did you feel like this story wasn't well represented already in the many biographies of George Washington? Uh, farming is usually treated as some sort of rural amusement is the term that would normally... This is just yeah. kind of a hobby, something that um, cultured people would do when they were home and had free time. And that is true of some people, um, but it's certainly not true of Washington. With Washington, it, it is it is present in his mind at all times. It is uh, never very far from his attention, even when he's um, uh, in the Army and when he's uh, in public office. He's thinking about his projects here at, at Mount Vernon, and they really animated him. I, in some ways, he... He was more comfortable doing this than anything else. He really thought it was his calling. So where, where does this come from? I mean, he grows up at Ferry Farm, obviously, on a farm. It uh, doesn't seem to be a particularly successful farm, uh, to the extent that I know anything about it. I learned from Phil Levy's book, probably, Where the Cherry Tree Grew. What is your thinking about the young Washington's introduction to the agricultural world and universe, and where did he, why did he get interested in improvement? Um, well, he, he, can, he um, embraces improvement very quickly. There's a small number of, um, far, of planters in Virginia who are dedicated to improvement, are tied to improvement societies in Great Britain, people like Charles Carter and, and, and to a certain extent, Landon Carter. And Washington's connected with those people. But I also think he's just someone who, by the time he assumes the the full-time management of farming at Mount Vernon in yeah. 1759, is thinking much more broadly and very ambitiously. So, so you're dating it then sometime after he quits the French and Indian War, quits the Army, and so, but you already see him at that moment engaged with improvement. 
right yes. from the start. Yes, absolutely from the start. I think yeah. when he he was going to continue um, this, this, the key work of any planter, which is tobacco production, um, for a variety of reasons he continues that. But he, from the very beginning, is skeptical that this can be the long-term um, foundation of the estate. And mm -hmm. I think for several reasons. He just has a broader sense than, than many of his peers of the agricultural potential of Virginia, especially with his knowledge of, of the West and areas that have not yet been cultivated by white people. Um, but also I think he's come to be skeptical of the whole connection to Great Britain mm -hmm. and that um, his experience in the military certainly um, um, is part of that, that he um, is, does not want to rely on... British merchants for what he sees um, as, as just intrinsically a dependent relationship. Yeah. So what do you, when you, when you read Washington in, in his early years in the 1760s, you know, and his frustrations with the mercantile system, with, with, his, with his correspondence over there, what, what do you see? I mean, what, what is the Washington that you see emerging from the documents that, 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 that tell that story? Someone who wants to have control over his own affairs, agricultural and business affairs, that he's very, very impatient and, and a little thin-skinned about any uh, perceived insults from uh, mm -hmm. British uh, merchants, mm -hmm. um, and that he, he wants to manage these affairs himself, and he wants to choose where he trades and with whom he trades. And if that happens to be Great Britain is in everyone's best advantage, that's fine with him. But if it, uh, he does not want to rely on the tobacco trade that he thinks is stacked against him and other and other Virginia planters. So as an agricultural innovator, is Washington more of a, a tinkerer? That is, is he trying out little things here and there, or does he have a all of a sudden a switch goes off and he's going to do a big grand shift? Well. A big switch goes off in 1785 after mm -hmm. he's returned to, to Mount Vernon. I actually think he had always thought very broadly that it wasn't just taking advantage of short-term um, markets or short-term um, opportunities. Um, but this is clearest in 1785 when he decides to completely remake Mount Vernon. I mean, he literally redraws the landscape mm -hmm. and changes the field organization um, with enormous effort that is required of, of the slaves at Mount Vernon to, to create the kinds of fields and meadows that will support this English system of husbandry that he's determined to um, 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 implement here. How does he Vernon. know about the English system of husbandry? Well, he, first, you're, you're going to have to tell us what it is. But, well, um, but how, does, how does Washington come to all of a sudden know what that is? Uh, he had always been um, interested in, it came with being interested in improvement. And um, earlier in the 18th century, there develops in, in England something called the New Husbandry, originally with yeah. the most familiar person being Jethro Tull. Um, not the, the band. Not the band, but the um, agricultural reformer. Um, Where did the band get its name? Do you know that? I mean, did they know about Jethro Tull, yes, the agriculture reformer? Yes, I think maybe Jethro Tull was more famous in England than in the <laughs> yes. United States. But, yeah, you know, so. Washington starts taking notes out of Jethro Tull in 1759, mm -hmm. um, right when he comes back to um, manage the farms. Yeah. Um, and so it, and England had a reputation of being the leading um, agricultural um, nation and... and uh, Washington is, is learning from that from the beginning. Um, what changes after the, the revolution is that he just decides to do a wholesale um, transition to this course of husbandry. And um, he has a very, very negative view of American agriculture and American farming. He thinks it's um, destructive. Um, he hates the way it, it um, just ruins the land and uh, leaves it to, to regrow. Um, 
and he's determined to both make it more productive, more, more attractive. Um, and it, it becomes, I, I think it always had been, but particularly in the 1780s, it becomes a very important um, representation of his learning and his enlightenment. Yeah. This is really where you see Washington as an enlightenment figure. Who knew that about Washington at the time? I mean, so here he is, the most famous mm -hmm. man in America after the Revolution. I mean, uh, is he associated with agriculture at all, or what, what are they thinking about Washington? He's, he certainly is after the Revolution. Um, and he is seen as the great agricultural hero, both by American agricultural um, uh, improvers and uh, mm -hmm. reformers, and especially by those in Great Britain. How um, big is his network? It's huge. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it mostly is based on, on connections with traders, and, and he also relied on um, people in the diplomatic service to, to gain information and uh, seeds and plants, uh, but it extends throughout Europe and into the um, uh, Caribbean. But he's planting seeds at, at Mount Vernon that are from as far away as Botany Bay. He tries repeatedly to uh, cultivate a kind of wheat from the Cape Colony of South Has Africa. Has he ever tried breadfruit, like blind? He does, he does not. Yeah. <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> it could have been the thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he's, uh, but he's not a botanist. I mean, we don't think of Washington as a, uh, you know, as a sort of amateur botanist in any way. He's not sort of a naturalist, I guess. Not in, in that the sense of many of the people he was associated he's an with. He's much more of, of, of the practical experiment. Yeah. He does try to, to grow what we think of as exotics, but they're mm -hmm. not in the sense of a lot of um, Englishmen are doing at the time of mm -hmm. trying to collect um, um, build collections like um, Sir Joseph Banks at Kew, trying to collect things from all over the world more for display. Mm -hmm. Washington very much focused on um, practical use. He, he, he grows cotton. He grows three different strains of cotton to see if um, uh, they will work. And he gives that up when he realizes he, he lives about 300 miles too far north to, to make any of those strains work. Mm -hmm. And so that he doesn't just grow it as a curiosity yeah. anymore. Well, he's in an interesting... Uh, part of the world when it comes to the soils and the climate. This part of northern Virginia was never really a great tobacco. It wasn't the sweet scented tobacco doesn't really grow well in, in this area. And so he, he's always kind of, he's, he's been on the outside looking for something. Yes. Um, although he, he um, Mount Vernon, he complains about the soil at Mount Vernon forever, but um, but he also considers um, Virginia about as far south as you can have um, a successful mixed agriculture. He mm -hmm. uh, has very negative view of what he sees when he goes on his southern tour, except, of course, the large plantation agricultural uh, enterprises in South Carolina, which he doesn't want to duplicate even if he could grow those crops. Mm -hmm. um, his ideal in America is, is in many ways Pennsylvania, which mm. he thinks is, is the best. It's got the most temperate climate, the best soil, and people who are a very wide um, a number of people in Pennsylvania who um, are interested in agricultural improvement, whereas he has a, a very negative view of his peers in Virginia, particularly later in his life. How does Washington's efforts to reform agriculture help us understand the story of the American Revolution? Well, I, I think part of the most important... Um, Bruce is making a face right now, by the way. 
Um, <laughs> what I think it does um, explain is, is Washington's conception of public service, yeah. that every part of his life um, in some way had to have some um, civic responsibility, civic virtue. Mm-hmm. And um, this is not just a private um, experiment or private enterprise of his. And um, to be successful in that civic nature, he also has to make something that's profitable and sustainable. But he really does see this as having a purpose beyond Mount Vernon. And um, he takes very seriously the, his um, reputation as the Cincinnatus of, of um, America. But it's not just that he's rejecting power. He's returning to the farm to serve some kind of public, um, public good. Before we talk about the, the struggles that he had in doing this and the challenges that he faced, mm-hmm. what, what do you think are some of the, the seminal successes that Washington would have pointed to uh, on his own management, his own farms, or, or in, in broader uh, context? Uh, the, the successful transition to wheat, which he recognizes right away, grows better here than tobacco, is a more dependable income, and... and um, He's successful. He makes money off of wheat, and he makes even more money off of it when he has the option of milling it. And he's someone who very carefully follows markets and decides each each season whether he's going to sell his um, wheat um, in whole or he's going to mill it into high-quality flour, and he wants to have those options. And the same thing comes into play with the distillery. He wants some control over the processing of the grain he grows here. Um, he could have made more money off of, of those grains, and he says so, but he says his, his gains would be um, short-term, that if he had transitioned or, or devoted more fields to wheat than to these more experimental and, and restorative crops, he would be making more money, but that he was afraid that in five, ten years um, he would have depleted the soils and, mm-hmm. um, and wasted the opportunity. Right, well, and you wouldn't want to cut down all your trees, right. too, and, right. as well. Uh, so what about uh, animal husbandry? Was there any great successes there, or was it frustration after frustration, or what did there, he do? There, there are frustrations, I mean, but, but I also think he, he's, he succeeds in that. That's something that requires his uh, presence, and like mm. a number of his enterprises here at Mount Vernon, he talks about them either succeeding because he's there or failing because he's not there, and mm. it turns out livestock um, management was one of those. Oh, really? His... his um, uh, flock of sheep is is tremendous at times, and he very proudly says if he's there, he can get five pounds of wool off of from each of each fleece. Which it turns out, I it, I talked to some people I know who <laughs> raise sheep, which turns out is now just a pitiful uh, yield. Yeah. But when he's gone, it's down to two pounds. And mm. um, but he he increases the number of those sheep, and they allow him to uh, not be self sufficient in the long run, but to to provide a significant amount of the cloth that's used to um, clothe the, the slaves here. And um, uh, so that's successful. And then ultimately, his his great effort was to breed mules, um, which uh, took a while to succeed. But by the end of his life, he has more um, mules um, at Mount Vernon than he has of any other kind, or all other draft animals combined. So tell us, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, the, the story... Mount Vernon, of course, that we know and, and love is the gift of, uh, of the giant jackass from the King of Spain, mm-hmm. uh, the royal gift 
and there was another that died, and uh, and so what he put these animals to stud up and down the East Coast. East is Coast, true. Is he uh, the father of the American mule? He is the father of the American yeah. mule, and uh, it's his first major improvement project um, after the Revolutionary War. Mm. Uh, it's the first thing. While well, he's trying to put the estate in order and his west and get a grip on what's going on with his western lands, the one great effort um, at Mount Vernon was to try and breed mules, and he calls on this network that only he could call on of, of people in Europe, including um, American merchants in Spain, knowing that um, he had learned about the Spanish jackass as the best way to breed mules from uh, the Spanish consul uh, during the, the uh, war, but that man, Don Morales, died, and mm. so he had to go find one on his own. He writes to people in Europe, he writes to Lafayette, who's searching all over Europe for yeah. um, um, breeding stock of jackasses to send to Washington, which he, which he then does. Right, Lafayette sends them from Malta. From Malta, three from Malta, yeah. and uh, then, of course, most famously, he gets the one, the King of Spain hears about this and is so flattered um, that he uh, makes an exemption for a very strict um, prohibition on exporting Spanish jackasses. Mm. Right, and so sa- like technology, these uh, these states kept their uh, their prizes uh, yes. close. Yes. You know, was it just expensive or was it illegal to export the it was Spanish? Illegal. It was illegal. Yeah. Um, so English agricultural treatises talked about the advantage of mules, but mm. said very few people in... England had any mules because no one could get the best breeding jackasses from Spain. So let's put a pin in this. We'll talk about it again, just real quickly. So when people say Washington is the father of the American mule, we you do believe that this breeding program initiated by Washington is going to create the, the widespread of mules, particularly in the southeast of the United States and, and then beyond? Yes. You know. he, he's not the only person, but he's the leading person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, it, it creates enormous interest. John Jay is very excited about this and wants to yeah. um, breed his uh, mares to, to royal gift. Uh, when uh, Washington goes on his southern tour, uh, when he gets to Charleston, everyone's interested in this, and he promises them that he will send royal gift down to South Carolina, uh, which he does. It's a terrible mistake. The person who takes him down there didn't take any, didn't take good care of him, mm. and royal gift. He does stand uh, at stud to the most famous revolutionary leaders of, uh, if you look at the list, it's all the most famous people in South Carolina. It's Izzards and Middletons and Pinckney's. Um, Anybody who's anybody. Yes. Um, But Royal Gift never comes back and ends up dying. Washington charges a fee for the stud services? He does charge a fee, and Mm -hmm. uh, both a fee for the stud services and a pasture fee for the mayor who Mm -hmm. would Mm -hmm. uh, stay at Mount Vernon Mm -hmm. for for the season. Washington didn't like the dollar. Yeah. Yes, and he keep well. He keeps extremely close um, uh, watch over the dollars and the costs of, yeah. of things it, like his record keeping is remarkable. Yeah. So now the big thing we haven't talked about, which is really something we should be, should have been talking about from the beginning, which is fundamental to him as an agriculturalist, is the system of labor slavery that dominated uh, what he did and didn't do. Talk a little bit about, in general terms, about slavery. Then we can talk more particularly about how it fits into his agricultural reforms. Well, obviously, um, slaves provide the overwhelming um, majority of of the labor force at at Mount Vernon. Um, Washington embraces this in his early years. He substantially increases the number of slaves um, that he has working under him. So is that related related to tobacco production, that he wants to make more fields productive or is it related to the shift to wheat why is he why is he buying slaves 
early on? I mean, what's he, he's just he, trying to get scale? He's, he's trying to get scale on wheat. And the initial um, requirements of wheat um, are, are high labor because mm. um, he, would, he had to clear more land. It requires more land than it does for tobacco. Um, and uh, he, uh, that's why he's buying so many. He buys slaves throughout the 1760s and early 1770s. He also gains um, the labor of a lot of the uh, slaves that Martha controlled from the Custis mm. estate. Mm -hmm. And he brings um, a large number of Custis slaves to mm. Mount Vernon. Um, they also, the Custis slaves who came from a much, much larger estate um, tended to have a, a higher skill level and more experience with diversified um, mm -hmm. tasks and diversified farming. And they take um, um, the more um, privileged positions, I would say, at, at Mount Vernon. And uh, so, what do you see with Washington's sort of labor management styles? How does it evolve over time? I mean, he's he's got a workforce that's growing. Uh, he's got ambitions in agricultural reform. What are what are the ways we can understand him as a as a master of of a many enslaved people? Um, he, he tries to exert very close personal supervision over them. Um, and he does this in the, the mid-1760s. He begins his daily circuit of the farms. Uh, he is there. He's observing uh, his enslaved laborers very closely. And I think more than most um, um, masters of a large plantation, he has um, a sense of, of these people as individuals and understands their individual work habits and reliability and um, mm. uh, is a, a very close knowledge. So he's very much involved then in moving yes. people around? Moves people around to try to optimize. Um, he, he does uh, what we would call time and motion studies of tasks that um, slaves are carrying out across the um, estate right, and so, then so tries how, to improve them. So and, how much time it takes to do, yes. how much labor it takes to get done, what the average you know, labor that's needed to do a particular thing, that yes. sort of thing. And so he's he, a scientific farmer. In that sense, very much so. He yeah. very much um, uh, interested in practical experiment and pract and, and careful measurement of, of both agricultural produce, but also the use of labor. So when does Washington begin to become frustrated with, with enslaved labor as a form of labor for his plans? Because that's the kind of story we often tell sure. is that you know, his frustration and eventually his moral difficulties of slavery, they follow his sort of awareness of an economic challenge that he faces. Is that the same thing you're seeing in your research? Um, eventually, but it takes a while to get there. Yeah. And uh, he, yeah. he, he first um, criticizes the institution of slavery or at least expresses a wish not to be involved with um, uh, the management of slaves during the revolution. It's a um, famous remark that he wants to get quit of, of Negroes. But in fact, the um, agricultural improvement plan that he um, adopts in the mid-1780s um, increases his reliance on slavery. Mm. And, and he actively tries to um, um, have a more exclusively enslaved labor force at, at Mount Vernon. He tries to train slaves take the place of the costly freed white uh, uh, ditchers and brick mayors and mm -hmm. um, other tradesmen and artisans who he has to hire. Yeah, so he needs a lot more skills with the he diversified agriculture that he's, 
employing and so when he uh, there are instances when when he does hire a free uh, laborer he yeah. uh, makes it a requirement that that person start training one of the slaves at um, Mount Vernon to take over the tasks so and he's using a lot of enslaved overseers as well he does um, he has his first um, uh, enslaved overseers Morris uh, who it begins in 1766 mm -hmm. and then works at that farm for over 20 years. At one point in the late 1780s, when he's really expanding the scale of, of production and the, the complexity of tasks, he has four uh, enslaved overseers in mm -hmm. place on five five of the out, then five outlying Is that unusual in Virginia in the 18th um, century? Or it hadn't been unusual early in the 18th century when there was a shortage of overseers, but in his time, he it, it would be um, atypical to, mm -hmm. um, uh, and th there are only two or three that, that um, he relies on as overseers for a, an extended period of time. In the 1790s, he again hires uh, more, more white overseers. But although the others, people like Davy, who had worked at various um, farms at Mount Vernon and who Washington said um, was the most reliable and caused less problems than any other overseer with whom he worked, um, he, he continues um, throughout most of Washington's life to, to be an overseer. So, of course, the, the obvious difference, aside from the climate and the soil, uh, between English agriculture and Chesapeake is, is the labor force is not free or contractual in some right. way. It's enslaved. How does this impact Washington's reform efforts? Can, well, he, can he figure this out? Or what, what it has a tremendous it? impact, and yeah. he recognizes it quite early, that this is always going to be the most significant difference and probably the most between um, English and Virginia agriculture and also probably the biggest obstacle to implementing this what was called the new husbandry of this plow culture and seven-year mm. cycles of rotation. What Washington um, does is, is I think in some ways the most innovative thing he ever carries out as a farmer and that is in November of 1785 he begins to maintain these weekly reports of work across mm -hmm. the estate yeah. and they're a goldmine for those of us working on um, the history of, of farming it at the estate um, but what they were what he was trying to do is to put in a new system of supervision and a kind of uh, accountability of time yeah. um, this is something that becomes quite common in the 19th century mm -hmm. in fact Planners in the Deep South would buy commercially produced books to, to keep uh, these kinds of records. But um, Washington, as far as I can determine, um, invents this on his uh, this system on his own. Is this being done in England? I mean, is this no. a common practice in England? No. A weekly um, report? There are some efforts to move in this direction in, in the Caribbean, but mm -hmm. um, uh, for the exact same reasons that Washington it is to try and make um, labor more efficient. Um, and to meet um, market demands in a way that, that um, slavery couldn't in the past. But he's done, he's, um, he really did, uh, invents this on his own. I, so I innovative for Washington, but not emulated. This is to say nobody yeah. knows about this. Nobody's trying to say, oh, George is doing this. The general is doing this right. on his estate. I should try. No, so you I see have, this. Right? I have found no connection. There are mm -hmm. other planters, the Taylors, who, who operate on an even larger scale in the northern neck of Virginia, um, are, move toward this kind of um, accounting, uh, particularly in the early um, 19th century. Yeah. But if there's a direct connection, I, I have yet to find it. Yeah, amazing. So, uh, so, so what does this have? What kind of impact does this have on Washington's then, you know, thinking? I mean, is this okay? He does this, but so what? What does it matter? Well, it gives him a very 
even with for his mind, which could grasp details very well, it gives him a very granular granular sense of what's going on yeah. every day across these multiple farms on, spread over 8,000 acres at, at Mount Vernon. Um, Washington, it's very much Washington's nature to want to keep that kind of accounting. He loves to have control over data and, mm. and assess things that. But he also um, explicitly said that part of this was an attempt to compel um, labor out of slaves without relying on physical coercion. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that he puts this in place, he becomes um, um, much more cautious about any kind of um, physical punishment um, and certainly not for compelling labor. And mm -hmm. his, he tells his um, overseers that it, it has to, to use the whip after someone didn't work in the fields um, was counterproductive and could have more negative effects than positive. Um, and so it really is a way, uh, becomes even more important when he's left and is in Philadelphia, New York and Philadelphia as president, that this becomes a way of supervising and accounting for labor without using uh, the physical coercion that he's trying to avoid. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. So, so he is growing in the 1780s uh, uh, more, uh, as you said, he, he wrote that he wanted to get quit of Negroes during the Revolutionary War. Um, but yet, in his reforms in the 1780s, he becomes more reliant upon enslaved labor. That's the labor force that he's using, and it's becoming more skilled in some ways. But so how does he start to think about what, how to get rid of this system on his own estate? Is that something you see at all? He, he expresses enormous frustration with managing the estate, but particularly with the management of slave labor while he's away as president. Mm -hmm. And um, he's, he's convinced that the overseers are not enforcing the rules and systems that he's put in place. He's convinced that the slaves at Mount Vernon are more and more um, stealing supplies and stealing um, uh, uh, crops from the fields to sell in what is a growing underground economy with the growth of Alexandria. There are more opportunities for uh, uh, slaves to, to make money on the side of something. Yeah. And, um, and, but he's, he has a sense that this is happening on an almost nightly basis. And his is initial, this a paranoid sense or is this a real thing? I I, a little of both. Yeah. I think it probably is, is happening. There are certainly accounts yeah. of, of materials from Mount Vernon um, showing up in that underground economy. Yeah. And um, I don't think there's any question. And it's, of course, it happens on other um, uh, states as well. Um, when you read the correspondence from this period, um, it's, it's, it's a level of paranoia, <laughs> almost obsessive control. I mean, no detail uh, was too small for him to address as president uh, in terms of locking up materials. He changes the way he distributes food so that there's less opportunities um, for slaves to sort of skim the top and mm -hmm. sell it. Mm -hmm. um, the overseers get uh, privileged, uh, whether uh, enslaved or free. Overseers got more food, uh, but each he changes that system, so instead of giving it to them all at once, like he does with the white overseers, the enslaved overseers start receiving it on a monthly basis, mm -hmm. uh, trying because he's uh, Washington's afraid they're selling. Peculation, right? Yes. He's trying to control corruption yes. and peculation. Yeah. It sounds like. Yes. But then, of course, there are these these plans he, he's making or trying to make to get, uh, you know, for a long term future for his estate. As he's thinking about his transition after the the presidency. Um, to get uh, to get out of the system uh, as it stands. 
He's trying to get English uh, overseers to come in. Yes. Right? Tell uh, me about that. The, the, what, is, what is this about? The, the very first um, uh, documentation of this interest in changing the organization of labor and per perhaps freeing uh, the slaves is in December of 1793. He writes a, um, a letter to one of his principal uh, agricultural mentors in Great Britain, Arthur Young. And he's yeah, Arthur Young's a major figure in he's this story. The we, major we should have brought him and, up earlier, probably. Um, yeah. And he's the author of, of the most widely read journal of agricultural improvement, yeah. The Annals of Agriculture. He has an extent, extensive correspondence with Washington. Uh, Young sought this out. He heard about yeah. Washington's yeah. Um, experiments with English husbandry and wrote him a letter and said, I'm here to help you. Young kind of is collecting famous He collects farmers. famous people. The, most, yeah. the other most famous being George III, who he's advising on farming matters at exactly the same time. Mm, that's a fascinating connection. But Washington writes Young and says he would like to lease out um, the outlying farms, the four farms away from the mansion house at Mount Vernon, and he would ideally like to um, lease them to accomplished English farmers who would then take over that farm, and then he says, almost as an aside in this letter, he says that um, they might then hire the slaves to work on their um, leasehold. He explains in a private letter immediately after that that um, he is making this effort to lease the um, farms. He's trying to sell lands in the West to raise money that will support this project. Um, but that his most important goal in this was, he, he says, to liberate a certain species of property, meaning to liberate the slaves. And um, yeah. So this is the scheme that he's trying to come up with. I'll get an English uh, tenant farmer yes. to come over, and they will become my tenant, and the right. slaves will become their employees or, yes. uh, or in some kind of temporary basis uh, till slavery, or uh, till, till freedom. And by late 1795, it's clear he's developed this plan in a much more sophisticated or mm. you know, complicated way. And he then starts advertising in the newspapers for this lease. Um, in England? Well, he advertises in... <laughs> this is part of why it didn't work, was <laughs> he only placed the advertisement in American newspapers. But he privately said he had no intention of leasing the farms to what he called the slovenly farmers of this country. Mm. He only wanted to rent to someone from England or Scotland. And he says that he's put it in so many newspapers, hoping that some of those newspapers will eventually reach Great, and he, and he's using word of mouth through... Heavily through. word of mouth because he's relying on his contacts among English agricultural leaders. Now, does he get an English farmer to take him up on this? He, he, he interviews several. Yeah. Um, there are some who come here, and uh, he never finds one that he really is willing to entrust the farms to and will agree to the, the terms. Do you think um, there was one of these people who existed in the world, or was no. Washington imagining a sort of a perfect... Well, a lot of this is yeah. imagining things that you can't really figure out how they could have ever worked. Yeah. Um, um, Arthur Young doesn't even catch the significance of this when he writes the letter. He doesn't even think about this line about right. uh, hiring the slaves. He just writes back and he said, the, the motivation for emigration from England to America is to own land, yeah. not to rent it. So, yeah. And yeah. since Washington's looking for what he says is an accomplished farmer, this is not some right. Roman farmer who wants to come farm 150 acres. He wants someone who can run a, a large operations. Um, and in that sense, I, I think it was 
unrealistic. Yeah. Uh, there are some people who know a lot about farming who write him, uh, a couple who come here to visit, um, but none of them. Um, what I find more mystifying about that plan is that Washington, um, by the early 1790s, decides he's never hiring another overseer or any overseer of um, enslaved labor who has not managed slaves previously. Yeah. And he's hired any number of English and Irish uh, immigrants who actually were quite knowledgeable, quite skilled, but he thought didn't know how to manage slaves, and the slaves right. he thought were taking advantage of. If you weren't raised in the system, yes. then you don't really you and have the he, knack, you don't have the he, cultural awareness, um, you, don't, you can't do it. Yeah. He limits um, his search for a new um, farm manager in 1793 to the eastern shore of Maryland because mm -hmm. he identifies that as the one place in America where there's been a successful transition to mixed agriculture yeah. but while still, while still relying on slave labor. And yeah. he's, he sees this as the only place where his, mm -hmm. his goal has, has um, been achieved. Well, maybe that's why he assumes, though, if he gets this tenant farmer... That they'll have to, that the labor will have to be no longer enslaved. That it would precisely, be, but it seems yeah. that yeah, but that's <laughs> it really yeah. wouldn't have worked very well if uh, right. Well, and we know it didn't work. So he didn't find these people before he died. And so how do we how do we understand then that transition to freeing uh, his slaves at Martha's death in his will? I, I think he comes to that decision through this path of agricultural improvement and trying. Yes, and uh, you know, there's no. Eureka moment where he says this isn't working, so I need. But, but I, he makes two decisions in in his will. One is that none of the family to whom he would leave the um, estate could manage what he's managed. Mm -hmm. um, Washington, more and more in the 1790s, and as president, comes to the conclusion, which I, was an easy one for him to come to with his disposition, is that only he can do this, that it requires his presence. It's mm -hmm. just not a, it's not a system someone else could take over. There, there's nobody working on this scale in, uh, in the oh, Chesapeake, there, uh, oh, there the are. Talos? I mean, there are, but yeah. he's not going to give them well, of course, Mount yeah, Vernon. Right. And uh, if he can't set up a lease of the individual farms, he's going to divide them and give them to his nephews and, yeah. and to family. But once he does that, he knows that this great experiment in English husbandry will collapse, and of mm -hmm. course it did. Um, but having done that, I think he then reaches the decision to free the slave, his own slaves as well. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't. The family who were inheriting it didn't need the they labor didn't need force, yeah. um, and so I. Um, I it, it's one of the challenges of the story I'm telling is to, to put this in the best, in the proper perspective. But I. I I think it needs to be seen as it's really his last act as a farmer and an agricultural improver was mm. to um, was to manumit his um, slaves through his will. So it's a uh, on the one hand, this is a story, of course, of great innovation, great vision, mm -hmm. entrepreneurship, all those things that are enterprising uh, a way to get at Washington. But on the other hand, is this going to be a story of failure? I mean, are we going to be? Are we going to have a bitter, angry old man at the end of this story? Bruce, you don't uh, like that in Alberta. You don't like that. In, in terms of um, the system of, of English husbandry that he was trying to implement, it was a failure. Yeah. And, um, and Because it's not emulated. It, it is not emulated. Which, e even more than ha getting his own stuff to work, was the point. 
it is it is not emulated, and in fact, the the direction of agricultural improvement in America go uh, agricultural improvement in some ways increases very soon after Washington's death, but it goes in a totally different direction. And yeah. it stops being the elitist movement that Washington was part of. It stops being organized by very wealthy people in Philadelphia um, or in Charleston in yeah. New York, and it becomes much more democratic and localized. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what is an he, he, so he's he's before all the agricultural society movements of the eighteen twenties and of those that, he is. That, the that ones he was involved with were um, they're on the royal model. They are very much they're literally on the royal model. They're yeah. trying to imitate societies and British Board of Agriculture and mm -hmm. um, the the kind of agricultural treatises that Washington read so much of um, all thought there was a special role for the wealthiest. Um, mm. landowners, mm. but not aristocrats. They had, uh, there was a belief that Washington totally shared that it needed to, this initiative and this improvement needed to come from wealthy landholders who also knew how to farm. So gentlemanly improvers, the gentry. But people who were practically yeah. involved in, in cultivation, like Washington was. Yeah. That's a um, very 18th century notion. Very 18th century, yeah. and that's a model that is not replicated. Right. And um, in that sense, it fails mm -hmm. in the other sense that sort of the Cincinnati side of this man who um, came back to his farm to show a model. Um, Cincinnatus becomes one of the great iconic images of Washington throughout the 19th century. He will repeatedly uh, uh, be pr represented with his plow or in his fields um, and that this is somehow seen as part of his um, civic virtue. And, um, and personally, you know, when, when historians are always struggling to get at the marble bust Washington, you know, the real Washington. Mm -hmm. What do you think this study of yours contributes to that kind of uh, always ongoing effort to find the man behind the myth? Um, I, I think his personality is revealed more clearly as a farmer than in any other part of his life. Right. Um, and particularly his most obsession with control and order and system and you also get a very clear sense of what he expected from other people. He has a fairly elaborate, if sometimes a realistic, uh, unrealistic, he has a very elaborate um, notion of, of responsibilities between people who work with each other and for one another. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he actually talks about, you know, the, the rights of the slaves to provision and um, medical care and their responsibility mm -hmm. to work every day. Every yeah. daylight hour for him, right? Um, yeah. And and also in his. Why don't um, they love it like I do? Uh, <laughs> he's um, up at dawn. He's he's going to bed. Yeah. You know. No, and he does. Yeah. He expects other people to work with the same dedication and commitment that he does, and that's why he's almost always disappointed in his overseers, <laughs> yeah. uh, let alone the slave laborers who. Um, yeah. So it, it does give a very clear sense of, of how he um, expects these relation, economic and, and labor relationships yeah. to, to work. Washington um, the man. But I think it reveals that most of all in that when he had a goal and an objective, there is nothing that deters him from mm -hmm. that. And uh, this in many ways becomes um, a test of his own ability to uh, implement this system of, um, across the board and mm. and to make Mount Vernon that kind of a model and to replicate the English uh, ideal. Well, so we look forward to the book, which will be coming out at some point. But what is the what is still some of the big questions that you're you're uh, grappling with as you as you move to to the writing phase? 
Well, one of my biggest, just the question I mentioned, is why he thought having English um, uh, lessees would, would work uh, as yeah, he transitioned slaves, since he didn't trust the English to, uh, to work as overseers or, or, yeah. or managers. Um, I, I also um, have, have not fully worked out how this man who's obsessed with profit, of, of, of obsessed with accounting for every dime, um, would then undertake um, an enterprise that he knew was probably going to um, lessen his income. Mm. And uh, why, why it became so important to him to achieve this agricultural ideal when, in fact, it was not maximizing the value of his estate or his, um, his income, which well, earlier... But, of course, his whole life was an example of not maximizing his, <laughs> oh. his economic value. I mean, yeah. the, the whole Revolutionary War service was not... You know, to make money, or at least he certainly would say it was not to make money. Uh, the presidency as well. So I think you're that public spiritedness aspect of what he's trying to do, which you talked about yes. earlier, seems yes. to fit nicely in there. Is that too romantic? No, but somewhat related to that. I'm also uh, I'm increasingly aware to which trying to live up to that ideal of of. Yeah. Of civic virtue and of the model of Cincinnatus in many ways uh, limits um, his ability mm. to succeed as a, as a farmer. What's the new discovery that you're most proud of? Or do you want to save your, your power? Uh, I'll probably. <laughs> say, I, I think the two most important things that I, I'm um, finding in here is one, this this trajectory of his interaction with slavery and 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 understanding his um, his his critique of slavery is almost never put in humanitarian or moral terms. Mm -hmm. It is almost always described in terms of his sense of slavery's deficiencies as as a labor source. Mm -hmm. um, the other one is just how important the connections with Great Britain. Why he becomes increasingly critical of American agriculture. Why he so um, strongly identifies with British agricultural improvement. Mm -hmm. This is after the revolution. This is as president. He's aware. He often will not say these things in in public or. Um, but uh, he is extremely discouraged about American agriculture, and he thinks that the ideal is still um, the British model. Mm. Well, thank you so much for spending time, uh, Bruce, and I've uh, appreciated having you as a fellow, of course, and look forward to the work as it evolves. All right. Thank you, Dave. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.